This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 4th, 2021. Is Rosetta being uninstalled? A protocol change for browsers, Microsoft Windows S, and all about cookies in your browser. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. We're starting with a bit of news that we have to take with a grain of rock. Did I say grain of rock? <laughs> a grain of rock. Um, okay. <laughs> a, a, a number of websites are reporting, based on some information shared on Twitter, that Rosetta, this is the emulation tool in macOS Big Sur that allows Intel apps to run on the new Apple processors. Rosetta may be removed from M1 Macs in some regions of the world. And the reason they think this is that someone found. You know, if you look into the beta software of an operating system, you can look at a lot of the text strings and other things. And someone found some uh, text saying Rosetta will be removed upon installing this update. Rosetta is no longer available in your region. Also, applications requiring Rosetta will no longer earn. So there was a typo in the original text, run instead of earn. Uh, We were talking about this before we started. It kind of seems strange. Why would there be some reason that Rosetta couldn't run in certain countries? Could it be that it's some sort of technology that can't be exported to every country? Could it be legal reasons that someone has a patent someplace that Apple hasn't told us? Like, did I buy an M1 MacBook Air only to find out that there's a patent troll that's going to prevent me from using Intel applications in my country? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, this is all very interesting. By the way, now I get the grain of rock because you're saying like Rosetta, Rosetta Stone... You didn't get it originally. Okay. <laughs> it took me a second. Okay. And I got it okay. now. It seems like the kind of thing that, you know, governments place restrictions on the export of, uh, of encryption protocols and things like that. So, um, you know, but this is something different because Rosetta is essentially just sort of like a, an emulation layer that allows you to run Intel programs on an M1 Mac. And I don't really see the connection there. I, I it seems like it, I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't understand this at all. I think it's very strange. I remember back in the day, and this goes back probably to the 90s, the early 2000s, encryption was illegal in France. This is before we had secure web protocols, etc., which we'll talk about in, the, in a, a couple of minutes. And the military did not want people to have access to encryption. Uh, obviously, that had to change. There was no way you could have online banking without it. But for a long time, it was considered illegal because it was considered to be a military tool or an intelligence tool. Yeah. And here in the U.S., um, you know, you couldn't export any in- encryption technology that was greater than, I think, um, maybe 40 bits was the common yeah. thing that you, you saw in web browsers at the time. It would either be 40 bit or 128 bit. And you could only download the 128 bit version if you said that, oh, I'm in the US, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and otherwise, you had to download the 40 bit version if you were outside of the US, um, which, of course, is 
totally crazy to think about, especially now, because it's like uh, 40-bit is so horribly broken at this point. And 128-bit is still like kind of okay, but it's funny to think that there was a point in time where that was like military-grade encryption and like how you could never export something like that. Processors were so slow that they couldn't encrypt something which required more bits. They, they needed a certain amount of processor power to, to carry out the encryption as well as the decryption. Right, right, exactly. And that, so that was one of the reasons why we had weak 40-bit encryption. At, at that point in time, it really wasn't that bad. You know, at least it was better than nothing, certainly. And, uh, of course, government agencies um, probably already had the ability to relatively easily crack 40-bit encryption. And that was why they didn't mind so much if you were to export that. Um, that's the theory, anyway, behind why 40 bits was okay and 128 was not. Just out of curiosity, I'm sure you're going to say yes, but you know what Rosetta stands for, right? What it means. Uh, well, the Rosetta Stone, right? Um, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum a few years ago. Um, it's quite impressive because it's in the middle of this relatively large space. It's kind of like a passageway where a lot of um, halls cross, and it's just sitting up there on its uh, pedestal. It's quite an impressive thing. Um, but yes, the the point of the Rosetta Stone, it, it had certain texts in multiple languages, and that allowed people to translate from these different languages. I've always thought that the Rosetta Stone was was really cool for that reason. You know, the Rosetta Stone was kind of like uh, the original Google Translate. Ooh, clever. That's a good point. I mentioned that we were going to talk about secure web protocols. Chrome will soon try HTTPS first when you type an incomplete URL. Now, you'll have to explain because this headline doesn't really explain everything. There's an article on ZDNet. So here's the thing. Um, for as long as web browsers have been around and have had the ability to support HTTP as well as HTTPS protocol, web browsers have defaulted to HTTP if you were to type in just a domain. So if you typed in apple.com, you would by default go to HTTP colon slash slash apple.com or www.apple.com. Um, that's what the browser will assume you meant. And now because almost all websites, certainly all major websites on the internet are using HTTPS, um, and support it by default. Um, you know, some some websites will, in fact, most websites really will automatically redirect you to HTTPS if you try to go to HTTP. Uh, what Google is doing with Chrome is that in a future uh, upcoming version of Chrome, they're going to actually default to assuming that when you just type in a domain that you intend to go to the HTTPS version of the site. And then if there isn't an HTTPS version of that site, then it will go to HTTP instead. So this is the exactly the opposite of what browsers have always done, but it makes complete sense. And I'm actually kind of surprised that this hasn't been implemented already across the board in all the major browsers. Yeah, it's true because there is this movement to get HTTPS everywhere. Um, I do see a lot of websites that aren't in HTTPS. These are small personal websites, some businesses even, that aren't in HTTPS. Fewer and fewer, but it, it's still, I think one of the, the hurdles is that you, with most hosts, you have to pay for a certificate. Some hosts include a free certificate, and it's probably getting cheaper. But with a lot of hosts, you have to pay like $10 a year for your website, 
which may not sound like a lot, but if you have a number of websites, that adds up. Yeah, and of course, there are ways to get a free HTTPS certificate. Um, one way is to use Let's Encrypt, which is um, it's it's free, but it's a little bit complicated to set up um, if, if you're just starting out for the first time. Um, there are other services also that um, allow you to, to do this um, for free or relatively cheap. Um, but at this point, uh, according to ZDNet, 82% of all internet sites, all sites on the web are using HTTPS. So, you know, it, it, I think it makes sense. It makes sense to default to HTTPS, assume that that's what users meant to go to. And then if that site doesn't exist in HTTPS, use HTTP. That, it totally makes sense. So they're just flipping it around um, from what it always used to be. About two years ago, I moved my personal websites to WordPress.com because they run on WordPress. My previous host would not let people use Let's Encrypt. They would only let you use HTTPS certificates that you bought through them. So Let's Encrypt, while it's good, I think one of the problems is you have to like update it every six months. Um, while it's a good service, uh, a lot of hosts don't want you to use it because they're making money selling certificates. Just briefly, before we started recording, we were talking about these protocol markers in web browsers like HTTPS. I remember when you used to have to type HTTP colon slash slash before uh, a URL. And now, first of all, it's automatic, but also there aren't as many protocols that are available like FTP and Gopher and what is it? And then what's the Newsnet? NNTP, um, yeah, yeah. NNTP for Usenet. Um, so most of these protocols aren't even supported anymore. Why do we even need to have the whole HTTPS colon slash slash? Couldn't there be a, a shorter way of doing this? Yeah, well, and, and some browsers are actually kind of um, doing this a little bit behind the scenes where they hide the protocol now by default. Um, because that's pretty much all you're doing. It's it's either secure or not secure HTTP, right? And so, yeah, there's not there's not really any reason to to type the whole protocol. It it takes a long time. Like, why would you do that when it automatically will put the protocol in there for you? Um, so it is sort of funny that that that's even still a thing. And, and of course, on billboards and stuff, you're never gonna see you know, HTTPS colon slash slash, because nobody's going to pay attention to that or remember to type all that. But you used to see it. Yeah. Go, yeah. go back 10, 15 years in ads and magazines, you would always see the full URL. Right, right. At the very least, um, you would see www dot. And uh, at, at some point, they kind of assumed that you would either know the protocol or your browser was going to fill it in for you. Right. Uh, now, there's another thing on the Mac. You can have a custom URL scheme for an app. And one example of this is um, a friend of mine who writes Apple scripts for uh, macOS media apps. Sometimes he puts scripts on his website and he has a little icon. If you click that, it opens it in script editor. So the URL scheme is Apple script in one word, colon, slash, slash. And any app can do that on your Mac if it just like does the right thing when it installs to register it. So on the one hand, we're saying that web browsers don't have a lot of protocols, but on the other hand, there could be unlimited numbers of protocols on a Mac. And I think you mentioned before we were recording that Windows has a similar thing. Yeah, that's right. Actually on Windows, if you use MS hyphen settings colon, uh, that is treated like a, a special custom URL scheme that will launch a, a settings app on, on Windows for you. And you can have, you know, sub pages even within that, that it'll jump to directly. 
And if you use the Chrome web browser, you'll see that when you go into Chrome's preferences. Ah, yeah. They have a similar way of addressing pages, which I'm guessing those pages are local in the app, right? They're not on the internet. So those are just web pages that they've got inside the app package. And when you see the address bar, you'll see the settings rather than opening a, a, a separate window like Safari does or like normal Mac apps do. Yeah, exactly. So, you, uh, for example, if you type in Chrome colon slash slash settings in your Chrome browser, it will take you directly to the settings um, page, um, which, yes, exactly. It's running locally. That's part of your browser. It's not actually loading something on the Internet. Um, if you type in that same URL, by the way, in Microsoft Edge, it will redirect you automatically to Edge colon slash slash settings. <laughs> because it's built on the same Chromium engine. Exactly. So they must have like a lookup table with the comparison of the two things. It's kind of weird, though, that you could type Chrome and get Edge, but (laughs) I guess that's Microsoft. All right, before we take a break, a quick one. Um, Google is also going to stop selling ads based on your specific web browsing. And it's kind of like Google's trying to say they're being good, but it's more like Google realizes that it's not working anymore and they've got a better way to track you. Is that what would be the best thing to consider. I mean, Google's not going to become a charity overnight, right? Well, right. That's that's my takeaway from this is that Google is basically subtly admitting cookies, you know, we don't really use cookies anymore. Who cares about cookies? You know, people have been blocking and deleting cookies for years and so basically we don't even use them. We don't care about them anymore. So, we've got plenty of other ways to track you, so we're going to make it look like we're super great because we're going to uh, stop really using cookies for tracking. So, well, congratulations. Well done, Google. <laughs> this is privacy theater and, and to some degree. I mean, sure, it's, it, it's better than not doing something, right? But it's, it, we but all you know, know that they've got a workaround that's yeah. not going to impact their business. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about cookies and some other news. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Um, MIT Technology Review. This is not something that's new, but there's an interesting story. Hackers are finding ways to hide inside Apple's walled garden. Essentially, um, iPhones are too secure, so that means uh, security researchers can't look for bugs and vulnerabilities as they have in the past. And we've talked about this a little bit. What I find interesting in the article is this quote. 
Um, while the iPhone security is getting tighter as Apple invests millions to raise the wall, the best hackers have their own millions to buy or develop zero-click exploits that let them take over iPhones invisibly. And it's an arms race, and the, the iPhone is so popular that these exploits are really valuable. Right. And, and Apple is doing something to sort of help the, the good security researchers. Um, they are making a very limited number of uh, special versions of the iPhone available to, to select researchers so that they can get deeper access into the system. But those are pretty hard to, to obtain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's it's been one of those things that because of this odd way of locking down the system that Apple has has always done for iOS it it does make it difficult for let's say a security vendor to to offer software for example to protect that system and it's it I think it's probably pretty common knowledge that you can't really have antivirus software for iOS because there is no way to hook into the system at a level where you can scan everything that's going on, where you can scan apps as they're downloaded and those kind of things. Um, at one point, um, Intego actually did have uh, an antivirus app on the iOS app store and Apple actually even changed its policy on that. What our app did was it allowed you to scan files within apps. So um, apps can have their own containers with files that you can load onto them and things like that. And Apple at one point decided, you know, we're not even going to allow that in the iOS app store anymore. And so basically um, they banned all antivirus software, even the, the little bit that you could do. You can't even do that much now. And, and at this point, really, the only way to scan files on your iPhone uh, that, that I know of is with um, Virus Barrier uh, for, for Mac. You actually can connect your iPhone to your Mac and use that to, to scan the files on your iPhone. Um, but there's no software that you can get on your phone to actually run and protect the whole system um, other than VPN software. So, um, But that doesn't provide all of the same things that an antivirus can do. The article mentions that Google's Chromebook might be the most lockdown device on the market today, which is true because you can't do anything outside the web browser on a Chromebook. Chromebook, the operating system, is the, the web browser. Microsoft, it says, is experimenting with Windows S, a lockdown flavor of its operating system that is built for speed, performance, and security. Yes. <laughs> Personally, okay. yeah, I, I wouldn't use Windows S. Um, if you're going to get Windows, get the real deal, right? I mean, Windows S is, uh, if you want a lockdown operating system, get iOS or iPad OS. I mean, honestly. Um, and, and if you want, uh, something with more like a, a built-in keyboard, okay, maybe get a Chromebook, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't use Windows S personally. Okay, Josh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> cookies, cookies. You like cookies? I like cookies. I like to make chocolate chip cookies, especially. Yeah, I was going to say chocolate chips. Uh, chocolate chips a good one. Classic. Yeah. I use that classic Toll House cookie recipe on the Nestle's bags <laughs> that you get with the Nestle's chocolate chips. But yes, we're talking about the different cookies here, the ones in the browsers. The origin of the term cookies uh, for a browser it has something to do with magic cookies. Is that correct? So. A magic cookie, um, I, I didn't know this. I had to look this up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and due to the magic of editing, we're going to pretend that um, this didn't happen, that I had to look this up. But a magic cookie 
is uh, apparently that was originally a token or short packet of data passed between communicating programs where the data is typically not meaningful to the recipient program. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, in any case, a browser cookie, though, is uh, it's essentially just a settings file for a website that your browser can store so that the next time you go back to that website, it knows where you left off. You know, if you uh, told it to keep me logged in, it'll keep that information for you um, handy for the next time you go back to that site. So why are we so worried about cookies? We just talked earlier before the break about Google not using cookies anymore to track people for ads. What's so bad about them other than that they're fattening? <laughs> well, so that's the thing is is that over time it became used for things beyond just site-related settings. And it it sort of developed this reputation of being something that advertisers could use to track you across the web. Um, because, you know, with third-party cookies, now... Um, if an advertisement loads uh, a cookie onto your system, uh, now when you use that same browser to go to another website that's using the same ad or tracking technology, they can tell that you've been to multiple sites. And so it just allows these tracking companies to see places that you've been across the internet. Maybe not every page, because not everyone's always going to be using the exact same trackers, but certainly they can tell a lot of the places that you've been on the internet, which is not such a great thing if you don't want these companies to profile you. So does this work in a certain way that the cookie has a unique identifier and that when you go to a website that reads the cookie, they're able to store the name of that website with that unique identifier. When you go to the next website, they store that one too. Essentially, yeah. the 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 site that is creating that cookie, um, if if it, this is a third party site that's creating that cookie, they can create any number of cookies on on your system, and they can access any cookies related to that domain. Uh, meaning re related to their own tracking site. Uh, and so they can easily tell all the places that you've been just by leaving a, a different cookie for every site that you've been to that uses that tracker. All right. Well, I have an article on the Indigo Mac security blog called How to Manage and Remove Browser Cookies on Mac and iOS. And there are two reasons why you'd want to remove cookies, in my opinion. One is because you're particularly concerned about a tracker, an advertiser, whatever. The other is sometimes I've had websites that don't load correctly, and the only way to get them to load is to delete the cookies and reset your access. Because a website is going to set a cookie recording your session when you've been there, maybe certain preferences. And occasionally websites just kind of break, don't they? Yeah, I, this doesn't happen very often. I, I certainly haven't seen this happen in a long time, but um, I, I have experienced that before, where deleting a cookie for a site actually helped the site to, to load properly where it wasn't before. If you ever go to, let's say, book an airplane ticket or a hotel room, what's interesting is to go to the website and see what prices are offered, then delete the cookie and see if you get a different price. Because they're using all kinds of trackers to know where you've been, uh, what you've bought in the past. And it's not, it's not impossible that you'll see different prices. I, I don't know how common that is these days because people have gotten wise. And the other thing that you can do as well, um, certainly try using a, a new brow a different browser or, um, a different, or a private browsing window. If you don't already have a private browsing window open, or the other thing that you can do is to um, use a VPN 
Um, because a lot of times if you pretend that you were in a different country, if you make it look like you're, you're located somewhere else, they might offer you a better deal. Uh, it, it might uh, default to a different currency, but you can usually change that when you're checking out. And um, yeah, very often you you will find better deals, on, especially when it comes to travel. Good point. So in this article, I explain how to manage cookies in Safari, Firefox, Chrome, and Edge. Um, worth pointing out that since the past couple of months, Josh has given his seal of approval to Edge, uh, that I feel <laughs> it's useful that we talk about Edge regularly, that I think more and more people are going to use it on the Mac. Each of these browsers has a, a slightly different way of accessing cookies. In most cases, you can delete specific cookies. You can look at what the cookies say about you, which is pretty much you know gibberish. It's just letters and numbers. It doesn't say anything. Although session cookies will perhaps have things uh, talking about certain preferences or dates you visited. Um, one thing I like to do every now and then, and I'm not sure this really helps a lot, is I'll go into Safari, look at the cookies, and click Remove All. Get rid of all the cookies, thousands of them. Now, what this means is I'll have to re-log into a lot of websites, Facebook, Instagram, Google, anything like that. Um, it'll reset a lot of the settings that you may have had. If you put a setting on a website to view certain types of content or some websites offer a dark mode, all of that's going to disappear. Um, anything where you've got a shopping cart, you're going to have to re-log in or you'll lose what's in the shopping cart maybe. But I find it's, it's somehow satisfying to cleanse all that stuff that's been, been tracking me for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of people, if you've never looked at your cookies or if it's been a very long time, you'll be pretty surprised at the number of cookies. And just scrolling through the list, I guarantee you're going to see a lot of sites that you don't remember ever having visited or and that you probably have no idea. What is this site? Um, you've got in your screenshot 1940s.nyc. I didn't even know NYC was a top-level domain. I didn't either, and I think that was – I was looking at some – website with a bunch of old photos from New York City. But yes, so I started my screenshot just numerically at the top. One of them is 192.168.136. I think that's the address of my NAS. One password is another one. 500-ish, I don't remember what that is. 500px.com is a photo website. Uh -huh. 1.1.1.1 is the first one that we've talked about. It's the, um, the DNS service provided by Cloudflare. Right, right. Um, I also see 192.com, which I kind of wonder if that was maybe like a typo, like maybe you started typing 192.168 and then uh, accidentally hit return or something and went, went to a website. I'm sure it is. And that's interesting because it looks like a place where you can look up like a white pages, yellow pages directory website here in the UK. And my guess is they picked that number for that reason. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, that's an, that's an odd domain. I mean, I'm looking through mine right now and I'm seeing all sorts of things that I've never heard of. And I'm seeing some EIA.gov. Don't know what that is. EPA.gov. That's okay. Uh, now, when you look in Safari, you see cookies and cache and local storage. These are three different things. You can't uh, in Safari view cookies the way you can in some of the other browsers. I think you used to be able to. But um, so, for instance, Epson.com, here's cookies, and then here's um, a, a cache. You could delete one or the other, but you can't see what's in the cookies. Now, if you look in Safari or Edge, you can actually see the content of the cookies, and that's where you see things that you probably just won't understand. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that you would see there historically would be plain text. Um, you would see 
something human readable sometimes that would uh, explain what the setting was related to. Sometimes now you'll just see what looks like a bunch of gibberish or gobbledygook, you know. Um, It's just um, usually something that's hashed just to make it a little less clear to you if, if you happen to be like trying to read the cookie, what it actually contains. So I'm looking at the cookies from Amazon UK in the Edge browser that I use. And I've got things like session ID. um, So it's got a date and time. Um, I've got session token. And that's something that is definitely gibberish gobbledygook. That's like a hash or something that, that they're using to identify me in some weird way. And there's a bunch of other things that you can look at. And some of them are readable and some aren't. Um, but again, they're, it's not something that users can do anything with or that users really care about. So th- to me, what's useful is either delete a cookie because a website's not working correctly, or every once in a while, delete them all and see what happens. Yeah, I, I don't have any problem with that recommendation. I, I think it's great to go through and delete them all every once in a while. Do, do you do that? Um, I should, but you know okay. what? Honestly, most of the most of my web browsing is in private browsing windows, and exactly. so I pretty much uh, know what cookies I've got. I think anyway. I should double check that and make sure that I haven't accidentally uh, viewed websites in a non-private browsing window that I didn't intend to. I suppose. <laughs> ha! For shame, Josh. Okay. <laughs> Until next week, Josh. Stay extra secure and check those cookies. All right, we'll do. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>